Acts chapter 24 and verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers." believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make this accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix, with his wife Drusilla, who was, a Jew, who was Jewish, and he, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word now and we ask that you do the work that only you can do to open our eyes and open our ears and show us from your word what it is that you would have us to hear. Work by the power of your Spirit in our midst today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our country, when someone stands before a court, they vow or swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we've seen this in countless TVs and movies, and some of you probably live in the real setting 
In theory, the objective of any court case is the truth. You want to find the truth. You want to side with the truth. And we would consider that justice. Well, in this chapter and in the following two chapters, we see Paul go before three different rulers. Today we see Felix, next is Festus, his successor, finally Agrippa, before he goes on to Rome to appear before Caesar. But as we look at his stand before Felix today, I want us to look at Paul's commitment to tell the truth. He didn't resort to personal insults, to flattery, to bribery, to lies, to benefit his case. He simply spoke his case, and he rested in the truth. There is peace to be found in the truth, and we live in a day and age where that's hard to see as true. (laughs) There's peace to be found in the truth, but we live in a day and age where that's hard to see as true because we don't know what to believe anymore. If you turn on the television, I mean, election season, (laughs) you know, it doesn't matter. Or the pharmaceutical commercials, you know, um, you don't even know what to think, whether you're watching the news or reality television or just entertaining television. If you open up a newspaper, if you turn on the Internet, what is the truth? Uh, We have people who uh, it used to be called marketing and advertising, but it's gone to a whole new level of spin and saying things to get people to buy or to subscribe or to think. So where is this peace that can be found in the truth? Well, as Christians, we are to live as people who tell the truth, who walk by the truth. We live lives consistent with the truth, but we're not immune to not doing those things. Um, It's easy for us. To, you know, we, we have ways of describing it such as little white lies or, well, she was just being manipulative or he was just being persuasive. But we are to walk according to the truth. And the reason why we can find peace in the truth and that we can find rest in the truth is not because of the concept of truth itself, although you could argue that logically. But it's the fact of who God is. It is his character, it is who he is that gives us hope to rest in what is true. That we can live according to the truth. And while I say there's peace to be found in the truth, I don't mean that all of our circumstances will be flowery. We will have trouble. There will be those who work against the truth. But we can know a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of these things. And so I want us to look today at Paul's stand in the truth and then what that means for us as we live our lives out. We see in verse 1 that after five days, Paul's accusers came from Caesarea. Remember, he was brought by a guard, a large 600-plus member guard of soldiers by night for his own protection. There was also some need for protection for them as well, as we'll talk about in a little bit. And now his accusers come to Caesarea. This is over on the coast of Israel. Herod had a palace there, and uh, now everybody arrives for this court case. Ananias is the high priest. This is not the same Ananias that we saw in Damascus at the beginning of Acts. It's a different Ananias. He was the high priest of the uh, Sanhedrin. Tertullus is his 
lawyer, so to speak. We don't know if he was technically a lawyer, but he was clearly trained in the law. He spoke well, uh, and he uh, makes his case. But to say that Tertullus showed respect before the judge, which is right and good and proper, would be a stretch. And I hope you picked up on that as we read through it. I mean, he goes way beyond proper respect to flat-out flattery and manipulation in what he said to Felix. The reality was Felix had not established peace over the past five years. He had been a harsh, authoritarian, ruthless ruler in this area. He was a Roman governor over this region, and he was the one who, remember when Lysias thought Paul was this Egyptian who had recruited the 4,000 rebels to try and overthrow Jerusalem and had thwarted them? It was Felix who came in and did that. But in the process, he not only thwarted this Egyptian uh, uh, rebel, but he killed a ton of people, including a lot of innocent civilians, and he killed them ruthlessly. I'll spare you the details. Because of his oppressive rule, more and more rebels rose up so that it was really unsafe to be outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And that was one of the other reasons why, when Paul was sent from Jerusalem to Caesarea, that he needed this armed guard. It was not only for Paul's protection from those who wanted to kill him, but it was the fact that in the countryside of Judea, at night, you didn't want to be outside and to be alone. These rebels were everywhere. So for Tertullus to praise the brutality of Felix as peaceful and just was a perversion of the truth. And then he levels these three charges against Paul, we see in verse 5. He calls him disparagingly, this man is a troublemaker, he says. For we have found this man, he calls him a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. It's interesting, the hyperbole in that statement. Uh, But the implication by saying he is a plague or one who stirs up pestilence is what? What do you want to do with a plague? You want to get rid of it. And so they're making their, their, their wishes known right from the beginning. He refers to him as a religious heretic, as a leader of this Nazarene sect. Um, there were many sects throughout history in, in Jerusalem, including at this time. But Nazareth was used as a particularly disparaging remark. If you remember, even Nathaniel, when Jesus was coming, said, can anything good come from Nazareth, Right? So Nazareth was not a place that you were proud to be from. I grew up in such a town um, as Nazareth. I won't tell you the name of it, but it's one of those places where it's just not a great place to be from. Uh, This is an attempt by the speaker to bias the hearers against Paul. There was no proof or no fact in this accusation. And then third, the desecration of the temple, which we've already heard has been leveled against Paul Multiple times we've seen it not to be true. This referred back to when Trophimus was with them. Someone said they saw Trophimus in the temple. There was never any validation to that. An accusation had to have two or three witnesses to stand in court. There wasn't such. But even if Trophimus had entered the temple, it would not have been Paul who was brought up on charges under Jewish law. It would have been Trophimus himself who would have been brought up on charges. So none of these charges stood, should have stood in the court. Tertullus speaks against Paul with arrogance and with condescension. It appears, at least to me, as I read through his statement, that he thinks he has an open and shut case. 
Do you pick up on that at all as we read through it? But I don't think he thinks he has an open and shut case because of the facts in the evidence, because there weren't any. I think what he is expressing here is this, he's accustomed to being in power. The Sanhedrin, the high court, Tertullus, these other leaders were accustomed to simply because of their position always being in the right. They got their way. And this is the way that he speaks before Felix. And the Jews join in in verse 9. And then comes Paul. His turn to speak and how does he respond? Keep in mind, Felix did get the letter from Lysias that explained a number of things about Paul. One, that Paul was a Roman citizen, therefore he was protected. Uh, That the charge against him was a matter of Jewish law, not Roman law. That the Jews wanted to kill him. That's why he, remember, he kind of twisted things a little bit and said that he had protected him and rescued him when in fact he had had Paul bound and was ready to flog him, but he left that part out. And he wrote in his letter that Paul had done nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. In other words, he wrote this letter saying Paul's basically an innocent guy except for these Jewish traditions and laws and religious considerations that they have, and it should be settled in that court. And additionally, Felix was aware that there was a plot. He had made him known of that as well. So as Paul begins to speak, we see now that he does indeed also show respect, but notice his doesn't go into the realm of flattery. He simply states things as they are. He says, I have not stirred up trouble. Uh, He explains in verse 11, if you'll look there, that he was only in Jerusalem about 12 days. The implication here is that he had been there hardly long enough to stir up trouble. He was only in town for 12 days. And of course, the exaggeration was to stir up trouble among all the Jews all around the world. He went to Jerusalem to worship. He points this out. And no one found him, in verse 12, disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. So while Paul typically went into the synagogues when he went into a city, we've seen this throughout the book of Acts, right? That was what he typically did. He went to the synagogue first. He didn't do that in Jerusalem. And while there had been resistance to his teaching in other places, this hadn't happened. We don't have any account of this happening in Jerusalem until these, uh, the Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, came along and stirred up the riot. And he states that his accusers can't prove any of these things. Again, the need that we see in Deuteronomy and in Jewish law is that there had to be two or three witnesses to accept the accusation, and there simply weren't. The second accusation was that he was a leader of this Nazarene sect. And instead of just saying, I'm not, he says, this is what I am. I do follow the way. I believe in the teachings of the way, which they call a sect, he mentions. But then he undoes all that to explain what the way or Christianity really is. That it is not in opposition to the faith of our fathers, he says, but it is the actual promised outworking of our faith. He says, I worship the God of our fathers. I haven't jettisoned the faith. I worship the same God, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And here he unfolds what it means that what the law and the prophets were pointing to, that they were pointing to something or rather someone. And that someone, of course, bless you, Ray, was Jesus. You see, Judaism under Roman law was a protected religion. And so Paul's saying, I believe in Judaism. And what Judaism teaches is that a Messiah would come. 
everything the law and the prophets point to is what I have been teaching is to be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Jesus is the Messiah. He goes on, having a hope in God, which these men accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The hope that Paul was getting at, and if you noticed, he keeps coming back to this over and over again, is the resurrection. And he says, these men, as Pharisees, now remember the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but these are all Pharisees here. These men accept the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And the implication here is that there will be a judgment at the end. The third accusation was, I did not desecrate the temple. We have been through this already, but he, he notes that he had he'd been away from Jerusalem for a number of years. There were, uh, we, we see him return to Jerusalem, but it's always for very short times. And when he came back and he brings this in, he actually returned to bring an offering. And who was the offering from? You remember? The Gentiles. <laughs> the Gentile Christians from all these new churches that had been planted. And you kind of have to wonder what his accusers thought of at this point. You see, the poverty that had befallen on Jerusalem as a result of the famine, remember when it was predicted, and it takes years for this to get over, that there was continued need, physical need. And who provided for that need but the Christians from around the world? And ironically, it was many of the Gentile Christians. Additionally, and we see God's sovereignty here, Paul had followed that purification right. You remember that? You know, he came into town and James and the other leaders of the church were concerned that Paul was going to be in big trouble. And so they said, hey, why don't you take these guys who are pursuing this Jewish custom of purification, go with them, pay for their, uh, basically pay for the sacrifice, and go through the purification right with them. And there was, even today, there's some squabble and some debate over whether Paul should have done that or not. But here we see God use it. Because the accusation is that he's desecrated the temple. And Paul's saying, no, I was actually following the rites and the traditions and the laws written down in Judaism and was following the purification rite. Not with any crowd or tumult, he adds. He hadn't stirred up strife. But it was actually the Jews from Asia who came in, and we uh, remember that from previous chapters. At the end of his defense, rather, um, Paul returns to the resurrection. And we see this happen again. Verse 21. This was the central issue. It was not an issue for the Roman civil court to decide. This should have been addressed between Christians and Jews in Jerusalem. It was a theological debate. And the inference here for Paul is there's no case. Drop the charges. Felix, there's, there's really nothing to, to, there's nothing to see here that should stand before a Roman court. The resurrection, though, that was what was important. And Paul unashamedly uses every opportunity to proclaim this hope. Listen to what Derek Thomas writes regarding this. He says, The resurrection validated everything Jesus claimed to be. It was the signal from heaven of his divine identity. It was his Father in heaven saying, Well done. It signaled the end of type and shadow and the emergence of the end for which all the ceremonial laws pointed. It validated the claim that Jesus Christ is alive. It is a glimpse of the ultimate goal of God's purposes with his people. In sum, the resurrection is the core of the Christian faith that signals the triumph of the cross over death, 
sin, and hell itself. Nothing embodies the Christian faith more accurately than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul always gets the conversation back to the resurrection. Well, how does Felix respond? Logically? No. Felix responds politically, and he kind of waffles. Now, Luke adds in verse 22 that Felix had a rather accurate understanding or knowledge of the way. I don't know what that means other than he knew more than most, but I'm not sure what all he understood. But I think this helped Paul's case. If anything, he knew clearly what the accusations were not against him in, that, in those terms. But Felix was not about to open the door politically for the backlash that would have resulted had he sided with Paul over the Jews. You see, these Roman governors that were put in place, these Roman rulers that were put in place, their, their main objective was peace. I mean, obviously they were an extension of Roman power, and so Rome's wishes came first. But they were, at the end of the day, pragmatists who just wanted to keep the peace. And they knew that if they ruled against the Sanhedrin, there would not be peace. And so what does he do? He leaves Paul in jail for two years. Just leaves him there. Well, in God's providence, he also gives him some freedom, which is a good thing for Paul. He's not kept in chains. He's given freedom. His friends are allowed to come and to see him. But notice how Paul uses this time, what little information we have. What is Paul doing? He's preaching the gospel. He's not using this time to to shore up his case against the Sanhedrin, to shore up his innocence, but he's, he's taking Felix and Drusilla to the gospel and proclaiming it to them. Drusilla was Jewish, so she had a foundation for understanding the gospel. But what is not known from this particular text that's known from the history books is that Felix and Drusilla had some issues. They were both known for their infidelity. They had both been married a number of times, and in this case, Felix lured Drusilla. He was married, she was married, and he lured her away from her then-husband. And So we can understand a little bit of why Paul was dealing with the issues that Luke mentions in verse 25 about righteousness and self-control and the coving judgment. And we can understand then why they resisted as well. Does this remind you a little bit of uh, John the Baptist? Remember when he spoke against the king and his un, un, uh, unjust marriage? I've had a number of conversations through the years with uh, unbelievers. And I have found that by far the number one reason people struggle with belief is not, is not a truth claim of the gospel. I mean, if anything, the gospel is too good to believe. <laughs> You know, unlike every other religion that tells you all the things that you have to do to reach God, the gospel, the hope that we find in Jesus Christ is God saying, I have made the way. I've opened the door. There's nothing for you to do but by faith receive this. It's too good to be true. But that's not where people find resistance. I have found through the years that what people struggle to let go of is what they want to do. And that's exactly what I think is happening with Felix and Drusilla. They want what they have. They want to be autonomous. They don't want to be told what to do. And they, like many of us, have deceived themselves into thinking that what they have is somehow better than Jesus. But we follow these people to the ends of their lives. 
And you've known people like this. And where does it end up? On the deathbed. It's regret. It's remorse. It's often a desire to get right with God. It's an admission of unfulfilling pleasures, how it was all for naught. It's admission that enough money was always just a little bit more. It's emptiness. It's vanity. This is where it ends up. And because of this, we know that peace can only be found in the gospel. If God is our creator, and he is, how are we to be right with him? And we know intrinsically that we can't do this on our own. We know, even if we won't admit it, we know deep down inside that we're not good enough. Or even if we think we are good enough, we have no way of knowing if we're good enough to be good enough. And so it's only in Christ that we can find this peace that passes all understanding. When we look at Felix, who resisted the gospel, we look in the end, and how does he end up in verse 25? He's alarmed. He's vexed. He's perplexed. He's in unrest. He does not have peace. And his rejection of the gospel is a message and a warning to us all. But as believers, we can know true peace. And this peace is always in accordance with the truth. Tertullus didn't tell the truth. In fact, he manipulated, he exaggerated, flat out lied to try and make his case. And it didn't work. And even if it had worked, it would have only been temporary because in the end, the truth always wins. Why? Because of who God is. God will judge. He will sit over all of us, all things, and all matters. It goes back to his character of who he is. Jesus made the claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Because of this, as believers then, we should tell the truth. We should be truth tellers. We don't have to lie. We don't have to flatter. We don't have to manipulate to deceive or spin things to get what we want. We trust Jesus who is the truth so that we can tell the truth. But not only do we tell the truth, we can speak the truth in love. We don't have to use the truth as some kind of battle axe to bludgeon people with. We can be kind and tell the truth. It's possible, and we should be. You see, the truth is what determines what love is. Apart from the truth, love is meaningless. I can come up and punch you in the face and tell you I was loving you, but you and I both know that I wasn't, right? The truth is what establishes what love actually is. And so we can, in love... Speak the truth. And I always think, and I wish I I did ask myself this question more often before I spoke, but it's kind of the golden rule, you know? Do I want to be spoken to this way? Do I want to hear this this way? Ask ourselves questions so that we're kind. Finally, we need to live according to the truth. There's no room for hypocrisy or duplicity in Christianity. We do what we say, and, and that sounds so good, doesn't it? until we quietly admit that none of us do. (laughs) Every day of every week, we all blow it. So what does it look like? It means that Christians, first and foremost, should live lives of repentance. That when we don't do what we say, that we repent. That we acknowledge that we're wrong. And folks, we can't do this in our own power, in our own strength. It gets back to what we were talking about last week of abiding in Christ. Because Jesus is the truth, it is only in Him and through Him that we can walk in the truth. 
So let me encourage you today not to hear this as a burden or a weight for you to go and tell the truth and live according to the truth and and speak the truth in love. But hear me say that when you are in fellowship with Christ, when you are walking with Him, when you are learning from Him through His Word, when you are walking according to the power of His Spirit within you, then you can live according to the truth. And when you sin, He will give you the power to repent. And so it's only abiding in Christ that this message of being a truth teller becomes not a heavy load, but a load that brings freedom both to you and to those around you. So let's be truth tellers. Let's speak the truth in love. And let's live according to the truth and find that peace that passes all understanding. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the truth. That we're not left to guess and find um, uh, through speculative thinking what is the meaning of life. Lord, but we can know that there is a reason that you have created us with a purpose and that there is an end that is coming that is sure. And Lord, I thank you even more than all of that, that we can have the assurance that we can meet you in the end with hope and joy as opposed to fear and dread because of what Jesus has done. And so I pray today that if there is anyone here who has never trusted in Christ and feels that dread of facing Almighty God, would you open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ and to know the hope that can be found in Him for the peace that is to be seen in the truth. And Lord, would you make us as a congregation people who speak the truth, who live out the truth, and do so in love. Would you continue that work in our lives that we would be a shining testimony to the people around us, to the area around us, so that others may see our good works and glorify you in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.